0: Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about a topic that all of us would prefer not to have addressed. Israel at war. We have been thrown into a treacherous situation by the Hamas terrorists by their vicious attack on Simchas Torah. We are going to talk about, in retaliation, the IDF, retaliating against the terrorists. Are there limitations that we have to put on ourselves, or can we go all out? We are going to be talking about the halachas of warfare. We're going to talk about the issue of collateral damage. Does the IDF, in its efforts, does it have to limit the damage, the killings to, quote-unquote, innocent civilians on the Palestinian side? What are the halachas of prisoner swaps? Can a hospital, can a doctor refuse to give medical treatment to terrorists? And we're going to talk about so much more. Joining us today is going to be Rabbi Beryl Wine talking about the root issue of the attack, of the hatred that Hamas has towards the land of Israel. We are going to move on to talk with Rabbi Dr. Yitzchak, Breitowitz to talk about the halachic aspects of the war. He is the senior lecturer at Or Sameach and a tremendous post world-renowned post Then we are going to speak with Jonathan Rosenblum, the Mishpacha columnist and author, to talk about the international political perspective on what is going on. Then we'll speak from a psychological perspective with Rabbi Dr. David Fox, the Dayan, the psychologist. He is the director of crisis and trauma services for Hive Lifeline. Then then we'll speak with Rabbi Daniel Wasserman. He's actually my first cousin. And he is a rabbi in Ashdod, which is fairly close to the Gaza Strip. And he was a rabbi in Pittsburgh in 2018 when there was the horrific terrorist attack on a synagogue on Shabbos. He was one of the leaders, if not the leader of the Hevra Kadisha, having to deal with the fallout of those murders. And then we are going to complete the show with Professor Claude Barabi, a fascinating conversation. He is an expert in terrorism at Hebrew University, and he will talk about what can be done, if anything. What's the root cause of the terrorism from Hamas? We are also going to discuss today about what can be done. What can all of us do to assist in the IDF's war effort? We can be davening. We can be doing a lot of things. In fact, headlines, Rav David Lichtenstein, we are setting up a Mishnayus learning program that will Amir act as a shmirah for the soldiers at the front, on the front lines. Those thousands of people who have been injured, the captives in Hamas lands, and all of the Jews in Israel and worldwide. So please find the link on the website Sign up for Mishnayas. We're going to see how many times we can finish Sa- Shas Mishnayas. So sign up, put in the Masechta you're going to take, or the Sedarim that you're going to take. And those who are able to do the more difficult Masechtas and the more difficult Sedarim, like Taras, please do that and leave the other Masechtas for for other people. I personally, I'm going to take Lineder, Seder, Kodshim. So I'm going to be signing up. And please sign up. Let's see how many times we can finish the Mishnayas as a Schuss for all of those in need right now. Also, should anyone be interested, there are recordings, audios of Mishnayas that I have prepared over time for most of Shas, not everything, unfortunately, but for most of Shas, and many Mesechdas actually have two sets of audio, one quicker and one slower. So we are going to supply the link for that as well on the webpage. So if you want to do it by audio, please use those. I'd be delighted. Before we go to our guests, I want to talk about a number of points—three or four points. Number one, I want to start out with a uh, Torah—a relevant Torah—on Parshas Noah, relevant to all of us. The pasuk says, "Es Elohim misalech Noah." With Elohim, Noach would walk, would go. He was always with a Baruch Hu. It's an interesting choice to use the name of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, Ha'elokim, which represents Midas Hadin, as opposed to the name Adnus, which represents Midas Harachamim. And in fact, the Goan of Avram Cohen from Tunisia, he focuses on this and he gives a very interesting and relevant explanation. He says, so many people, so many people are able to daven with Kavanah, at a minion, we are Covei Team Latara, we do things great, that's when the times are good. But when the times are difficult at an Ace Tsara, we have a lot more difficult time with it. The Davening, we're not concentrating as much. We may be missing our kviyas, we may miss shiurim, we may miss our havrusas, and the Torah is teaching us here by saying, "As Hayalokim Isalech Noach, Noach went with Elokim, representing midas hadin. That even when it was an Astara, even during difficult and challenging times, nonetheless Noach stayed who he was. Even at the time of midas hadin, he maintained who he was. Didn't matter that there were challenges." He was the same Sadiq Tamim Bedorosav. That is the true test, says Rebbe of Raham HaKoin. So that's very relevant for us. These are challenging times. These are really difficult times. I have a neighbor, Rahman al He has 10 grandchildren in the army and one of them was murdered. I have a Chavrusa whose son is in the army waiting on the Gaza border. I have another neighbor, three sons and a son-in-law. My children... They are going around and contributing as much as possible to Kalal So There's so much that we can be doing. They are volunteering, giving out clothing for those who have been displaced. Over 100,000 Jews have been displaced from the north and not near the Gaza Strip. They are going around donating nonstop, day and night at the hospitals that are in need, working in the ER, etc. This is the time that we need to step up, this eighth Torah, There's a against us. Es Elohim. we have to be es alokim hisalech. We have to be going, committing, doubling down even more, obviously sticking with what we, we typically did. To date, learning, davening, but we have to do it better, and we have to do more. I, I do want to focus the next point on the staggering number of Jews that have been killed, that have been murdered, that have been injured and are in captivity. And we always see these quotes of the numbers, thousands and thousands and thousands. But there's something so much more that we need to focus on than the numbers, the gross numbers. 1,400 murdered, 4,000 injured. There's a pasuk, very powerful pasuk in Parsha vaira, right after the Akeda. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises to Avram that I will multiply your descendants. And he says, I'll multiply them effectively in two aspects or two ways. like the stars in the heaven. V'kechol ayam, and also like the sand on the ground. These are very different aspects of Klal so Kol You can't have one grain of sand. You need a lot of grains of sand together. And they each are not unique. They are the same. They're the claw. That represents the tzibur of Klal So That's the sand. The sand on the beach. The Kol Chveh is very different. As the Pasuk says in counts. Each one separately. Each one has a name. Each is unique. Each is an individual, and that's what each victim is. Each has a name. Each has family members. Each has relatives, maybe parents, maybe a spouse, maybe children and friends. Each is a unique person. Each had huge potential in his or her life. Each one is a kolchav. Whenever we see the numbers, we cannot only focus on the kol, the kol Don't only focus on the sand. The number, each was an individual, and it's so much more tragic. On this show today, and this is our next point, we're going to talk about collateral damage. Collateral damage is when the IDF is retaliating for the vicious attack that we had on Simchas Do we have to be concerned about causing the deaths of quote-unquote innocent civilians on the Palestinian side? Do we have to put our soldiers into a risky situation in order to avoid damage, collateral damage to civilians? So where are we going to get an answer to such a thing? We're going to be talking about this issue on the show with a couple of our guests. But we're really, fundamentally, we have to look in the Tanakh. We're in the Tanakh. Dina. Dina was abducted. She was kidnapped and raped by Shem. Ben Chamor, as Rabbi Berowine is prone to say, reading the Tanakh is like reading today's newspaper, Jewish women being taken into captivity and raped, Rachmanelitzlan. And we have, in that situation, that Shem took Dina, they negotiated a deal. They negotiated a deal that if we get a Mila, then Bnei Yakov, they'll marry, will intermarry with Shrem, the city of Shem on the third day. Shimon and Levi, the third day after the brismila, the most challenging day, Shimon and Levi come in via Gukolzachar. They wiped out all the males. And the Maharal in his Arye asks as follows Shem, Shem himself, he abducted Dina. He was the sinner. What did the rest of them do? They were innocent bystanders. And he answers as follows. When there is somebody or a nation he's focusing on that does something terrible to call Israel like taking of Dina. Even if it was only one of them, one of the entire nation, nonetheless, because he's part of that nation and they attacked Klal Yisrael, it's permitted to take revenge, to take revenge against the entire nation. And he says, that's part of the rules of war. This applies to every war, he says, that if a nation, an individual or a group of individuals in a nation attacks Klal Yisrael, we can take retribution against the entire nation. That is going to be an important subject that we will talk about during the show today. Clearly, we have a against us. Clearly, we had it coming to us and we are having a severe punishment from our kaddish baruchu. What do we do? What can we do? So here are some concepts. Obviously, the most obvious, Davin. Davin with kavana, Davin for everyone in need, number one. Number two, learning of Torah is a shmira for kol Yisrael. Learn where we have times that we've said already, learn better. And add time. That's what we're going to do with this Mishnahist. Please sign up. In the Mishnahist that you learn, please add time. Don't take of time that you're already committed to. Let's add time. Let's learn, Let's learn the Mishnahist on behalf of all of those in need. So number one, Davin. Davin. Number two, learn Torah. Number three, be nice to people. For example, if you're in the land of Israel and you see a chayal, a soldier, go over and say, thank you, Yashikoyach. I've done it many times. And it brings the biggest smiles to their faces. So that's number three. Number four, look for opportunities to help others. Look for opportunities. You have, you have the most amazing stories right now about individuals having amazing ideas and contributing to Kali's in the most terrific ways. 1,500 people waiting online at one location in Yerushalayim to donate blood, waiting for hours Children selling cotton candy. What's the payment? What are they charging? Say to them. These are unbelievable opportunities, amazing ideas, and let's actuate them. Before going to our guests, let's hear the riddle of the week. This week's riddle comes from Parshas Noah, a very simple question. What is a gematria for the word Hamas? Hamas comes up at the beginning of this week's Parsha, towards the beginning of this week's Parsha, the land was uh, destructive, decayed in front of a Akadosh Baruch Hu, and it was full of Hamas, and Akadosh Baruch Hu saw that, G. says, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to be Mashi, so I'm going to destroy Hamas. But let's get back to the riddle question, what is the gematria of Hamas, truth be told? I don't want people to be in suspense on this one. I'm going to answer it. I'll, I'll violate the headlines, riddle laws, and uh, policies, and I'll answer it. So I'm going to refer to Bala Turmi He actually brings two gematrias for the word Hamas. Number one, he says, May Noach. Hamas is the gematria of May Noach, the water of Noach, the destructive flood. It comes to teach us, he cites a Gemoran Sanhedrin. Milamid is coming to teach us that a Kaddish Hu, Mida, Kenegin Mida, he destroyed the people that they were Hamas, they were full of Hamas. So that's May Mabul. That's the first Gematria. The second one I like even more. He says as follows, Hamas is Gematria for Gehenim. For Gehenim, same Gematria to come to teach us Nidonu that they were punished in boiling hot water. We should daven that the terrorists Hamas Akkadish Baruch Hu, should take retribution against them. They should wind up in Gehenna, mida keneged mida. Okay, I guess I should give a uh, a riddle that I don't give the answer to. So I'm going to give one from. Parsha's Bereshi. Sorry, it's not next week's Barsha, not next week's Barsha, but Parsha's braces because it's very relevant as well for our topic today. First three words, Bereshi's Barah Elohim, Rabbi Eliyahu, a coin from Tripoli and his Sefer Orchus Klein points out, if you look at the last three letters of these words, the Sofei tables the last three letters of Bereshi's Barah Elohim, it spells MS, truth, honesty. That is the seal, the essence of a Baruch Hu, Chosomah Shal is MS. And what is it... Coming to teach us. Actually, I'm going to ask the question as follows. If it's so important, which it is, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu represents honesty, the opposite of Hamas, all the lies that they tell about Kal Israel, as uh, evidenced by the lie that it was the Israelis that sent a missile to the hospital. It was really them. And then they said it was 500 people that were killed and it was nothing near that. But in any case... The Chosamo of Akharash Baruch who is Emes. So that's why it's at the Sofe Tavos, the last three letters of Bareshis Bar Elokim. So if it's so important, the essence of a Qurish Baruch is Emes. So we have a Remi's at the beginning of the Torah. Why is it on the sofai Tavos? Why isn't it on the Roshe Tavos? The beginning letters. Why not? Why not at the beginning letters? Why is it at the end letters? That is our riddle
1: of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, three three zero one one seven zero two five zero. 70250 In Eretz Yisrael, it's it's 372 304
0: And now let's go and hear from our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Beryl Wine. Rabbi Wine is a renowned Rav, historian, author, speaker, and so much more. Rabbi Wine, it's always a privilege and pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Rabbi Wine, how do we explain the current war with Hamas to the world?
2: I don't know if we can explain it to the world. We have to explain it to ourselves first. And it's uh, a. It's the eternal uh, struggle. But there, how do you explain Amalek? How do you explain uh, 2,000 years of persecution? How do you explain uh, uh, the persecution of religions that persecuted us for no reason, except that we were not willing to adopt their faith? The answer is that Barossi, the Ravon created in the world, Choice between good and evil, and the uh, evil always feels that violence is the way to salute to solve all questions. They have no patience to discuss or think or assess matters. So, the Hashmi la to just to destroy others. If you think about it logically, I don't even think the word logically applies here, but Hamas has nothing to gain here. What does it have to gain? What did they think was going to happen?
0: What were they thinking?
2: Well, the answer is they weren't thinking. Evil never thinks. And you go back uh, through this. What was Hitler thinking? He really thought he would get away with it. And you go through all of human history from, uh you want to start with Julius Caesar on? The answer is that they don't think. It's not part of the uh, equipment that evil has. So evil only knows violence and murder and torture, and and it only knows temporary gain, a tactical victory, a propaganda score. But in the long run, Khazal uh, said, Shekhar ain't lo right? Uh, falseness doesn't stand. And uh, so uh, it's a long and bitter war that hasn't even begun yet. And unfortunately, in war, there always are casualties. But uh, we are faced with our existential role. So it's always the Jewish people that are in the forefront of good versus evil.
0: It's interesting you're not phrasing it as uh, uh, we're protecting a or anything like that. It's not over the base of Mikdash, not over land. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, much yeah, more, first of all, much more significant.
2: Yeah, it absolutely much more significant than Their land that said all of that is nonsense and they know it and they don't believe in it themselves. You can't run Gaza, he's going to run the whole country. It's ridiculous. But that has
0: nothing to do with the, uh, their behavior. Their, their behavior is based upon evil. Right. Are, are, are there any lessons that we should learn from this attack?
2: <laughs> be prepared, I would imagine, to be a good lesson. The main lesson is uh, arrogance, you know. Look how great I am. Greatest army, greatest intelligence, the gold standard in intelligence. Show us how puny we are. If God doesn't build a house, the greatest architects and builders can't build it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, amongst uh, us uh, there are many who believe in themselves we have uh, arrogance is the worst of all qualities because it leads to everything else it leads to anger and argument and everything else. and arrogance is i know better i'm smarter i know everything i'm right you have no right even to say that anything different okay so the lord here uh, gives us uh, you know this is the messiah sure
0: live uh, it's not a book. Here it is. Right, right. So you, you mentioned Sheker Ein Loraglaim Chazal Tala. So how can we understand how the senior Hamas officials lie so blatantly? I mean, Sheker Ein Loraglaim, try, we try to cover because things
2: Because to them, there's no such thing as a lie. That's part of evil. There's no lie. There's no truth. There's no absolute scale. It's whatever you want. So if you want, you say whatever you want.
0: But to say we didn't
2: kill anyone
0: when there are videos of it. Listen,
2: uh, you know... uh, They've been lying uh, uh, for, uh, for 80 years, right? And uh, they think they can do it because they get away with it, right? Eventually, they don't get away with it. But in the short run, you always get away with the lie.
0: And they've gotten away with it, and there are plenty of people still supporting that. Yeah, because
2: people, are, uh, people either are <laughs> have the inability to discern between good and evil, or people themselves are evil. I think a great deal of the media is evil not that they don't know the truth. They're evil. They have an agenda. The moment you have an agenda, you've bought into the fact that you can do anything. Because the agenda justifies whatever you do. You can destroy... I mean, well, you witness it to the United States of America. You can destroy the United States of America from within because they have an agenda. They recognize there are no electric charging stations. But my agenda is to destroy gasoline because of some notion that I have about car know, Crazy. does make a difference.
0: You have an agenda, you have an agenda. Uh, so may- maybe you've answered my next question, but Hamas blocking their own people, the Palestinian people from fleeing. because And bombing them. They killed 70 of them. Because
2: Prevent- it means nothing to them. Human life... <laughs> It's, they have an agenda, right? So nobody can stand in the way. They, their own people can stand in the way of their agenda. I mean, uh, that's the story of Cain and Havel. Cain had an agenda. He, he killed Why? Right? His own brother, he killed him. Because he's, he knows better. He's entitled. And uh, when an agenda is fortified by the cover of religion, it's doubly dangerous. So we're living in the Crusades. I mean, you want to know what the Crusades were like? That's what it was. The Crusaders went house to house and killed Jews. Why did they kill them? They didn't even know who the Jews were. They had an agenda. The Crusades also killed Christians, probably more Christians than Jews. Because of the agenda. Because of the agenda.
0: Right. Now, Rabbi Wine, we've been talking about Hamas, the terrorists, the murderers. How should we think about the non Hamas Palestinians? And I'll quote. Are there any? So that's that's the question. Ron DeSantis, presidential candidate, said that the United States should not take in any Palestinians if they flee from the Gaza Strip because they are all anti Semitic. So that's the question. How should we think about? uh, How do you
2: think about a mullah? When when you read in the Torah that you're supposed to destroy Amalek, doesn't that go against our sensibilities? Doesn't that go against what the Torah itself represents? But that's the question. If you had a chance to kill Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin when they were infants, would you?
0: Absolutely.
2: Why? He's an infant. That's the Bensor Amora. But you would but you would have so but you would have served, saved hundred and twenty million people. That's the issue here. The Palestinians they're never you know, uh, <laughs> it was a terrible time in the United States when they said uh, no good Indian was a except a dead Indian. Well, that was a... Uh, so, today to say that is racist, bigoted, etc., etc. But what was involved was what they felt was an existential threat to their
0: own existence. And this one isn't so existential.
2: And this one is right at your doorstep. And they tell you so. There's a reason that Israeli Arabs don't serve in the Israeli army. It's not because we don't need them, or we don't want them, or not even because they don't want to serve. It's because of the fact that deep down you can't rely on them because they really hate you. So even though you're giving them everything and they're a citizen, et cetera, sooner or later, as was proven in the, the Intifadas, it was the uh, Israeli Arabs that rioted it, not the Palestinians. They were the ones that shut down all the roads in the Galeo, killed Jews, etc. The true colors came out. So unfortunately, you know, again, it's not nice to say, and it's certainly not socially acceptable, and it doesn't fit into the uh, beautiful world that uh, we delude ourselves that we live in, but the real terrible world uh, that exists. It's the same thing, you know, there were no Nazis in Germany. Everybody was a good German. We only did what we were told. How could you have brought the world to destruction? I mean, then German people voted for Hitler. The Palestinian people
0: voted for Hamas.
2: So
0: what do you want? Rabbi Wein, I'd I'd like to get your opinion on this. We're now obviously in a very difficult situation that they have in excess of 200, 250 Israeli captives. So when we're weighing, removing Hamas from power and they're holding... It's
2: not my my expertise. I'm glad in in a very sad way that I have nothing to say on the matter difficult issue, very difficult issue, whatever we do is wrong, right, so who knows who right knows, who knows who knows who knows so the question was uh, it's the old question right should should we have, should the allies have bombed auschwitz would have bombed Auschwitz or have killed thirty thousand maybe it would have saved a million who knows so uh, these are all uh you no know, again, we don't have prophecy anymore uh, the Lord has stripped us. So that we realize that we have no answers,
0: right? So, one final question for you, Rabbi Wein. It's interesting to note that not one Arab country offered to take in even one Palestinian refugee because
2: they know what it is. They know what'll happen to their country. They, they, they would Hussein, Hussein would uh, Abdullah would remain on the throne of Jordan or Rasisi and on the uh, part of the head of uh, Egypt. They own, they know the story. They know it perhaps better than we do. The only one that effectively disarmed and destroyed the PLO was Hussein. It was not, uh, not Moshe Dayan. We'll see how all of this plays out, you know. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the opening words of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Juliet Howe. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the Lord. He is trampling forth the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored.
0: That's it. Very good. That's quite a point to end on, Rabbi Wein. Thank you so much for joining us. We should hear good news. Yeshekala. Joining us right now is Rabbi Yitzhak Breitowitz. Rabbi Breitowitz is a renowned posek, a popular Maggid shir, and also the Rav of Kehilas Or Sameach in Jerusalem. Also a senior lecturer at Or Sameach, Rabbi Breitowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rabari. It's always an honor to be with you. It's an honor to be with you, but we're typically not under such uh difficult circumstances and this is uh this is a tough one. This is a tough one. Well, you know,
3: um Baruch Hashem, all of Chlal Yisrael, I think, is sharing in what we're going through here in Eretz Yisrael, and that is a source of great, great comfort to us. Uh, your good thoughts of B'nei and your Tfilis should hopefully be added to our Tfilis and our Maizim Taivim, our Tira, your Tira, and together with Achtos and Avas Yisrael, we should be zocha to open up the gates of heaven, the Shari Rachamim. I will say that from my observation point here in Yerushalayim, I'm noticing that there is a lot of uh, increased unity between religious and non-religious. I understand that tens of thousands of chayalim are wanting towards wear tzitzis, uh, even though they're not normally religious. And my own prayer would be that when we have shalom, that should be very, very soon, uh, we don't forget about this achdus and connection that adversity has forged. Sometimes we have a bad habit that when times are very, very difficult, we come together, and then when that's over, we just drift apart again. I hope that the octus that's being generated should have a Qiyon even after the Torah has passed.
0: Amen, amen. Absolutely agree. Fully agree. So why don't we start uh, discussing the situation, a highly unusual situation. And uh, we're sitting, uh, a war is going on. And the question that we keep seeing in the news and in the politicians speaking about it is the concern over what we call collateral damage of the Palestinians, that Israel is bombing and uh, going in if it's going to be a foot war. ground war. And the concern is that Hamas, everyone, almost everyone, there are a lot of Meshagayim out there actually that aren't aligned on Hamas being a terrorist group. But sane people are in agreement with that, that Hamas has to go. And the concern is the collateral damage when you go in, when you wage war, there are civilian casualties when battling, when bombing terrorists. And the concern, question is, is that our concern? Do we have to do our job? Do we need to bomb the place? And if we happen to hit civilian, so be it.
3: Well, first of all, I do, I do want to comment that um, the Israeli army, even from a secular perspective, has an enormous concern beyond really any army in the world uh, regarding the protection of civilian non Uh We gave Gaza warning to evacuate. Opportunity to evacuate. I didn't notice that Hamas uh, dropped any leaflets before they went on to their murderous evil, uh, rampage. And uh, many people have been criticized, have criticized the Israeli government for being overly sensitive uh, to the needs of you know, enemy civilians. But in many, many ways, it is a Jewish value to have rachamim and to give uh, non-combatants the opportunity to escape. This is the Ramban's mitzvah of leaving a fourth side. Uh, to allow escape. However, uh, when push comes to shove, and we are actually waging war against an enemy that wants to destroy us, and we are dealing with Pashtus, maybe we'll get into this later, with a category that's called Melchames Mitzvah, because the Rambam writes that a mitzvah war can exist in three situations. One is Amalek, one is the Seven Nations, and we don't really know who they are or they're extinct. But the third is L'Hoshia Yisrael Mi'atzor, to rescue Jews from enemies who attack us, there is no question that Hamas meets the definition of Milchames Mitzvah. So in Milchames Mitzvah, you do whatever you can do to eradicate the enemy, to disable the enemy, to disarm the enemy. Now, obviously, if you can avoid collateral damage and accomplish your military objective, you try to do that. Uh, But if, God forbid, there are human shields or or Hamas positions, it's... uh, weapons where hospitals are or schools are, which, again, is a barbaric tactic. We need to take whatever it is. We cannot be held hostage. We are m'choyev to achieve victory. It's a difficult question, but again, there are Makoras to this effect. Uh, There's a radak, I believe in Sefer Yoshua, who explicitly says that in the course of milchama, even those who are not fighting can be eliminated, if necessary, for the military objective. Now, I want to point out, this is not the same as uh, simply collectively punishing everybody. I mean, we're not deliberately targeting civilians. And indeed, uh, Israel tries to get them out of harm's way, just as when Shaul HaMelech was commanded to eradicate Amalek and the B'nai Yisra were Mu'urav with Amalek, they were given a warning to get out. So we'll give them the warning to get out, which again, to repeat what I said, is a much greater courtesy than our enemies have ever afforded afforded us. But so called so we cannot allow even the presence of civilians to prevent the eradication of an enemy that is trying to destroy us. Right. And again, I'm, I'm saddened. This does not make me happy. Um, I'm not happy over this. I'm not gleeful over this. But it may be an absolutely necessary evil that Halakha recognizes may be necessary.
0: You you mentioned collective punishment. So would that be problematic, for example, cutting off food, fuel, electricity to the residents of Gaza in order to either punish Hamas or to get control of the situation, use that in an effort to get captives released? Is that going to be problematic halakhically or is that another? Well, you know,
3: once again, these are last resorts. These are drastic resorts and, and I'm deeply, deeply saddened. I mean, I, I hope people won't take me for this. I mean, I am saddened over the carnage on the other side as well, because there are innocent Goyim uh, in this conflict. But nevertheless, based on the Red Hat, um, if this is a way that we will disable the enemy, destroy the enemy, force the enemy out, then we have to do whatever we can. Because remember, this is not uh, even over territory. This is over lives. Um more than a thousand people were viciously murdered. Babies were decapitated. Uh, women were raped. Hostages were taken. And, and the God, you know, we pray every moment that they should be freed, but, but their lives are in danger every second. So okay. we have to do what we have to do. This is a Milchames Mitzvah by any definition. And Milchames Mitzvah permits collateral damage when necessary to
0: secure the military objective.
3: So okay. I would even include uh, starvation and the and, and like.
0: Right. So you, you mentioned the captives, and Hamas threatened to start killing the captives if Israel does not stop bombing. That is uh, taking us hostage. Is there a halachic requirement to cease bombing if you have a threat over your head like that, that they're going to be killing the captives? Well, um, th- that does raise,
3: you know, very, very significant questions. Uh, but basically, let me just uh, point out uh, a very interesting horror of the Minchas Chinuch which many modern posts can actually bring to l- the because it's a very logical argument. And that is, the Midrash Chino says that when it comes to Muhammad's mitzvah, we do not utilize individualistic cheshbonos of pikuach nevesh. After all, every soldier can say, I, you know, I don't want to fulfill the mitzvah of waging war because it's dangerous to my life. Obviously, if the tyra legitimates war, the Torah is saying individual lives may be at risk as part of the military effort. Now, this is lavdafka for chayolim. Lavdavka for chayolin. This would even apply, again, very, very tragically to civilians that are caught up in this fire of war. That is, we have an objective to be matzil am Yisra. Then individual people can and may have to be put at risk in order to secure the military objective. So we do whatever we can, certainly, to save the hostages, but we can't abandon the mission. We can't abandon the need to crush this enemy, even if, God forbid, and again, we pray every moment that nothing should happen, but even, God forbid, people may have to lose their lives, because in a sense, they become involuntary chayolin in the struggle right. to be the They, too, become part of the Nochanas mitzvah.
0: So just to push it a little bit more, and obviously this whole situation is tragic, if it's not Hamas that is threatening the captives, but we know that there are captives, or we have a question, maybe there are captives in a certain building, and there are terrorists in that building as well, and we want to target that building? Would that, again, be the same equation as we have a need for the Tzib and there are Yechidim in that building, and we ultimately have to follow what is necessary to accomplish the ultimate goal of of the war?
3: You know, again, this is the most painful, the absolutely most painful type of question. And and I, I don't want to be callous or indifferent to this. This is something that rips my heart. But ultimately, ultimately, if this was necessary to root out the terrorists and there was no other way that we could get them at a different time or a different place, um, I would think it would be halakhically justified.
0: Right. Uh, but uh, a, a question, a different type of question. You know, one of the problems here is that there's not a death sentence in Israel and these terrorists are regurgitated out of jail and they have prisoner swaps and they go back and they go back to terrorism. And I, something that would take care of that is a death sentence for terrorists. Is there a halachic view on having a death sentence for terrorists who are attacking Kalal Israel?
3: Now, again, you know, that's an interesting question. Now, obviously, we know that even Bizman Hazer, when we normally don't have jurisdiction or capital punishment, we can obviously kill uh, a terrorist to prevent him from doing what he's doing. That's the halacha road. On the other hand, it is also halakhically correct that once the redifa has been stopped and the Rodaif is in custody, we don't intrinsically have Dine Nefashos jurisdiction to execute. Right, The halakha of Rodaif is before the fact, it is not necessarily after the fact, where you need a bastin, you need smuchim ordination and the like. You may recall a few years ago that this was a big controversy in the IDF in which there was a YouTube video of a terrorist who supposedly was disabled. And a chayal walked by and put a gun to his head and and shot him. And uh, the chayal was up for court-martial because uh, the terrorist was already disabled. Now, I don't want to get into the facts of that particular case because the chayal actually argued that the guy was reaching for a weapon. And if that's the case, uh, it would be a totally different story. But in principle, in principle, uh, there is a hillock between uh, disarming or disabling the rodaif before the fact and punishing the rodaif after the fact. So on its face, there would not necessarily be a halakhic justification for capital punishment, but there may be bases that this might be justified. And uh, one one idea might be that under the Noahide code, which is binding on non-Jews, a Ben Noach can be killed uh, for violation of the Sheva Mitzvahs, one of which is of course the murder. And so the Rambam is mashma, a controversial Rambam, and some people who wrote upon this got in trouble with the police, but the Rambam is mashma that even a yochid can be a vigilante to enforce the Noahide Code. That's the story of Shimon and Levi killing Shechem when there's no court system that's enforcing, enforcing this. So based on that, the Israeli court system would not be worse off than Shimon and Levi executing judgment against Shechem. So given those circumstances under the Noahide Code, I think a halachic argument could be constructed, that we could bring a death penalty for terrorists. And in terms of public policy, I think it's a very good idea. But as I yes. say, you want to work, you want to work within halacha, and I think uh, our Pesach would be uh, the Rambam's words in Hilkas Malachem regarding the enforcement of the Noah Ha'ikah, uh, vis-a-vis and levi by So
0: uh, I guess a, a logical step that will and typically happens with Hamas, is that they look forward to prisoner swaps. That's the reason that they take one. One of the main reasons, if not the main reason that they take captives. And we all remember the Gilad Shalit one for a thousand swap. And unfortunately, a number of the terrorists that were set free in that prisoner swap went on to go back to terrorism and were involved in the Simchas Torah attack when was a commander leading the guard um, on Simchas Torah. So the question is, what's the halachic view of prisoner swaps, especially lopsided prisoner exchanges like the Gilad Shalit exchange? I understand that there are thousands of Hamas terrorists in uh, Israeli jails now, and they would be looking to exchange for all of them. Plus, is that halachically mandated or not when we have uh, a huge amount, huge amount of of uh, Jewish prisoners being held by them right now?
3: Yeah, uh, this is a huge, huge controversy. And, and sometimes we don't necessarily like to talk about it publicly because you know, we don't want Gilad Shalit to feel bad. And we're very, very grateful that he's back and healthy and married and the like, but in reality, in reality, this is an enormously problematic halachic area. It is based on a Mishnah in Masacheskitin, which is brought down in the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. We're just talking about pidyon shavoyin, uh, the ransoming of captives, and it mentions we're not potei shvuy for more than his slave value, which is relatively small. We do not pay excessive ransoms. And the Gmar gives two reasons, but the reason that's Paschimba Halakha is in order not to encourage hostage-taking in the future, Uh, meaning if one can take a hostage and collect a huge ransom, that incentivizes this type of of activity in which you are endangering a future population. Uh, Based on that, when you certainly talk about a hostage swap of 1,000 to 1, and even much less than that, you're obviously violating that Halakha. But let, let me go back a little bit. And give a little background. So the pashtis of the Mishnah and the Shulchan Aruch is that hostage exchanges are improper because you are endangering the future population. And, of course, we've seen that. And let me point out something else too. another Nikita. The hostage exchange is even worse than what the Mishnah is talking about. The Mishnah was concerned with hostage taking just to get money. Meaning, oh, I'm encouraged. This is very different. Uh, you're actually reintroducing terrorists back into the population. So it's not just money; it is actual murderers. And as you pointed out, tragically, uh, some of those released hostages became the terrorists who perpetrated the I mean, terrorism on uh, the Jews on Simchas Torah. So let me just mention though that Ravadi Yosef, the Colonel of Bracha, took a very, very interesting position, and he said that the entire sugya of not paying excessive ransom only refers to the case, which I think is very rare, but this is what he says, that the person's life was not in danger. In other words, if you don't pay the ransom, they're just going to keep him as a prisoner. But when the person is in a massive pikuach nefesh, it was Ravadj's position that the certainty of an existing pikuach nefesh overrides the potential risks that you'll have by, by releasing terrorists or the like. And therefore, Ravaja said, since is, since it is inescapably that Hamas or terrorist hostages today, their lives are threatened, under the principle of Ein Sofak Mosimidevada, that you have to look at the Vadai B'Panecha, as opposed to the long-term doubt, Ravaja actually matured prisoner exchanges because of Pikuach. Not only really matured, he considered it desirable because of Pikuach nevish. So according to Ravadjah, you would have a halakhic basis for this. But I do want to point out that uh, Rav Baj's position has not been the position of most poskim. And indeed, you know, although it's not for me to judge, it's extremely unlikely that the Mishnah is talking about a shavoy where there's no pituach nefesh. I mean, there's almost no heichitimtza of that case. When people are kidnapped and held for ransom, it is routine that they're going to be murdered if the ransom is not paid. And afilu hachi, the Mishnah says, ein podinus hashvuyim, So the pashtus of the halacha, we have our who, of course, one has to deeply respect his hachra in halacha, but the pashtus and the opinion of most poskim is that these prisoner exchanges are totally, are generally going to be forbidden because of the danger that they pose to a future population, both in terms of money and in terms of releasing terrorists, both in terms of incentivizing future hostage-taking and creating present dangers by releasing terrorists. Now, there is a story that's been said, which may or may not work. And that is that if the reason why we don't pay these ransoms is to prevent future hostage taking, some have argued when you have an enemy in a state of war who might be interested in kidnapping as a terrorist, act, paradoxically, whether you pay them or not, whether you exchange or not, they're still going to do it. So that B'dafka might be a heterophor because you're not necessarily creating additional incentives.
0: Right. That, what we yeah, I, 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 think,
3: I think that's a little weak, but there is, there is such a swara that enemies in a perpetual state of war, this halacha may not apply.
0: Right, right. There's a Rambam in Hilchos Matanas Anim. I, I think that may be against Ravavad. It's in Periches Ha'alacha Yud. It says, Ain mitzvah it's talking about the priorities in giving tzedakah. And he says the greatest priority is p'idyon shuim, redeeming captives. Bichlal They are starving, hungry, thirsty, not fed, not taken care of. Varumim, they're not garbed. They're not taken care of. Not a roof over their head. The so it seems that the Rambam's definition of Pidyan Shuhim is somebody who is Yeah, I,
3: I think that's a very good point. And, and once again, I mean, just in terms of historical reality, kidnapped hostages are always in, in danger. Let me remind you, as, as you know, of the famous story of the great Maharami Rutenberg, of mayor of Rutenberg, the Rush, who actually was held uh, hostage for a huge ransom. And his own Talmud, the Rush, wanted to redeem, have him redeemed. And the Marami Rittenberg had passed him. It was interesting. Machokas. The Rush held, there's a gadol hador exception. <laughs> the Rush held, for a gadol hador, you can do everything. marami Rittenberg said no. So how could the Rush argue? He said, the Marami Rittenberg basically said, hey, if I'm the gadol hador, you've got to follow my psa- my sack on this. And marami Rittenberg remained in imprisonment for more than seven years. Interestingly, after he died, they also didn't want to release the body. But at that time the Russian sack allowed the body to be released with a huge, huge ransom. At that yeah, point the felt he could pass it on his own.
0: After a number of years. After a number of years. After it a number was, years yeah. you know, so, so um, I saw a news piece, Hadassah Hospital made a statement that they refused to treat a terrorist. Uh, the authorities requested that they treat a terrorist. And this was actually the second hospital that did this. And they said, we're not treating terrorists. And it's uh, an interesting question then is, can a doctor, could be an individual doctor or a hospital as a whole, refuse to treat a terrorist? I don't know if we get into the uh, Hippocratic Oath in the United States, if that relates uh, to this question or not, but I'd love to get your view on that that
3: you know I have to say that um I'm actually not sure about this for for, for a few a few reasons. On one hand, the of anyway, the Khiv of non Jew anyway to medically treat him is not so clear because the of to treat a Jew is based on Lotamod al re'echa and the anovid Kukhavim is not Okay, that's one thing. Okay, well we do it, and the mission says because of Darche Shalom, we give medical treatment to Gaia. Now, then we have a terrorist. Now I think it's a double question: that uh, if there was a shortage, if you had two patients to treat, then obviously the terrorist is going to be the bottom of the list. I think that's very puzzling. But assuming there's no manpower shortage, right? Assuming that you know every Jew who needs medical treatment is going to get treated. To have a policy, we're not going to treat terrorists. I'm not entirely clear what that is, because here's the thing. You're, if, I'm assuming right at this point that you're not allowed to kill the terrorist because he's been disabled. I'm assuming that that's right, because he's not in a state of Redipa. Once he's not in a state of Redipa, then perhaps the normal rule that you you you, you cure uh, people, even though they go home, might come into being. On the other hand, if the shot is... I and mean, what's going to happen here? I'm 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 assuming again. There's a lot I don't know. I'm assuming if we give him medical treatment, we're not going to send him back to Gaza. <laughs> that would be pretty idiotic. We're going to imprison him, you know, for whatever the trial is going to be. So as a result, if he's not going to be an active danger, and he's not a roadie right now, and he's not depriving other Yidden of a bed or medical assistance, assuming that's the case then I'm not sure if a hospital should have a policy we don't give medical treatment. I mean, in some ways, Bnei Yisrael, Arachman, and Bnei Rachman. Now, again, uh, to send him back would be idiocy. But to give him medical treatment and then put him in jail, to me, that seems like a better thing to do. I I don't think a hospital should be in the business of simply saying, we don't treat you, we throw you in the street.
0: Yeah, unless they're worried about uh, having hafkanot, converging on them uh people people demonstrating about maybe the,
3: that's it I, I mean the official thing I read was that they simply said we have shortages that, that might be a pretense they, just said, they, they do
0: have it. they actually do I know uh, I mean, so again I,
3: I will admit a hundred percent. That uh, no terrorist should displace a a Jew for medical treatment. That, that's the word. Now, somebody sent me a video of Chaim Kinsky. Some, I think, someone from Zaka asked from Chaim Kinevsky the Shaila about: I am a terrorist. I am a Jew. So Rav Chaim Kinevsky said, "You go to the terrorist first. Said, you shoot him in the head, and then you go the <laughs> Jew. But again, I have to say that's the halacha, I don't think that was applicable. Um,
0: that was anyway. That's halacha, but not Lamasa. Right. Halakha Bulla Okay. Very I'm not much. even sure. I'm not even sure if it's Halakha, but it was just a statement. Certainly certainly not La So, yeah. so if, if we could put on our our uh, Nevim hats on, on, on this question, I, see people talk about why did this happen. And and there were really certain uh, traumatic, tragic events in Israel, um, lack of values that were evidenced, uh, especially in Tel Aviv. And uh, there was a court decision, for example, banning a mechitzah for public prayer. We live in Eretz HaKadosh. We live in, in in the Holy Land. And a court is saying that it's illegal to have a prayer service with a mechitzah on public land. And, and what that led to was clashes on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, that people came out to prevent Yom Kippur tefillahs. We're tearing down the mechitzah. And this is absolutely, to me, is a travesty. It's horrific. And, and the question is, is there something that we can look to to say, why did this happen? It happened on Simchas which is the day after Hashanah Rabbah. That's the uh, sealing of the deen, right? That's That's the day that it's all sealed. And right then, the next day, tragedy hits. Is this something that we can say we need to improve in a specific area? I know we're not in veem nowadays, or is it simply that we have to say we need to improve and each person should look individually at what they need to improve in and, and try to do chuva accordingly?
3: You know, listen, um, much of what you identified, I certainly agree with. What happened on Yom Kippur was horrendous, 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 horrendous. The holiest day of the year, which even secular, most secular Israelis observe in one way or the other and to simply tear down the Mechitzah. So, you know, Rav Moshe Sternbach, throughout Sukkot, before, before anything happened, he was talking nonstop that a tragedy is going to happen. It's almost Kodish, HaKodesh. And he even spoke about Simcha's Torah, you know, not having this Simcha because of it. So clearly, at least our Gedolah Israel or some of our G'dolem, had intimation. But here is the thing that, that bothers me. I do not want to focus on the mistakes or the sins that other people commit. I don't want to say, oh, the people who pulled down the mechitza, they brought it down. Or the secularists who were protesting judicial reform against religious Jews, they brought it down. Because in a sense, that's simply an arrogance of saying, oh, if there's any problem, you know, it's their problem. People even say that uh, the people who were killed at the concert there were Mechal Shabas shabbos and Yom. And all of that might be true. All of it might be true. But my avaida is not to look at what other people do. My avaida is to look at myself. And I think the central message, which will address every side, is we have to learn to live with shalom, and we have to learn to live with respect, and we have to learn to live without sinas If there wouldn't be sinas then the mechitzah wouldn't have been torn down. You see, these things are an outgrowth of a sinah, a polarization, a pacha. And unfortunately, there is fault on all sides. And I'm not going to be to say one side is worse than the other. We have to look, we meaning everybody, we have to look at ourselves and we have to say, what can I do to make the name of Hashem beloved in the eyes of others? This is the Gemara and Yuma, the Ahavta Hashem Shema Lekacha, you shall love God. So the Gemara Darshins, you shall make the name of God beloved. Revel Yoshev would often say that this is the most important Avita of religious Jews in this generation, is to make the name of Hashem beloved. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to become fruit, but at least they will look at Torah Judaism and they will say, this is a nice thing. This is a good thing. This is a beautiful. And if we make the name of Hashem beloved, then the Yom Kippur Mechitz is not going to be pulled down either. So, as I say, I can identify plenty of things from the secular standpoint that were serious, serious Averos which would bring down the anger of God. I, I don't deny that that's a reality. But I have to ask myself, what have I done to contribute to those other errors happening? And I, I can't change other people. As Ross Laundrie used to say, I thought I would change the world. At the end, I can change myself. And the world may be affected by changing myself. So that's our kashpana. I think there's a tremendous sapana when we look at other people and try to identify fault that.
0: Very good. Well said, Rabbi Breitowitz. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. This was going to be a halacha discussion, but it became not only halacha, but mutzer and ashkafa and some beautiful words of how we can each self improve. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, everybody. I know that uh, we're in Yerushalayim together, so uh, we're going through this together. And uh, yes, just Hashem, all of Klavi's cells should see a Yeshua
0: of the Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Jonathan Rosenblum. Jonathan is a famed commentator on current events. He is the author of numerous biographies of Gedolim and also a popular weekly columnist for Mishpacha magazine and also a very good friend. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, all right. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Jonathan. Very basic question. This is coming up all the time. Given the horrific war that we have been forced to enter, should Israel in retaliation be worried about collateral damage when they are retaliating?
4: By
5: collateral damage, I presume you mean civilian deaths. Yes. Yes, Israel should be worried if only because of the... uh, well, for many reasons, but Israel does adhere to international uh, humanitarian law, the laws of war. That's, that's the first point. It, it, it does, and for both strategic, moral, and other reasons. But there are so many misconceptions. No matter what Israel does, it's accused of war crimes. In other words, if they tell the population uh, of northern Gaza to move to the south, they're accused of ethnic cleansing. If they don't tell them to move, they're accused of targeting uh, civilians randomly. So no matter what it does, as uh, one English commentator pointed out, Israel is always wrong and it's always a war crime. The first thing you have to remember is If there's no means for a nation to respond to attacks like the attack that Israel suffered or to 5,000 rockets being shot at its citizens and so forth, I mean, it can't be that a law doesn't allow a nation to defend itself. I think when we're in discussions with people who start loosely talking about Israeli war crimes, go on the aggressive, go on the offensive, ask them, what do you think the United States would do if 5,000 rockets poured over the Southern California border from Tijuana? What would the United States do? Would it simply absorb them and say, well, there's too many civilians in Tijuana. We can't go back. We can't go in on the ground. We can't respond in any fashion. Go be, make them define what they think international law is. But in any event, there are many, many misconceptions about the nature of the laws of war. You know, you hear the New York Times puts up every time there's a war here, the number of Israelis killed. Well, this time it's going to be a little bit harder because there's so many And then they put up the number of Palestinians killed and say, this is disproportionate. That has nothing to do with proportionality as it's meant in international law. In international law and with the laws of war, it means that if there are going to be civilian casualties, they have to be proportional to the military objective. Israel is always going after a military objective. There's also something called in the wars of law, the principle of distinction that an uh, uh, an army must wear uniforms, it must identify itself, it must be distinct, and not use the civilian population as as shields against any uh, enemy uh, attacks upon them. Hamas violates that rule in every every respect. They deliberately locate all their military uh, hardware in civilian areas because To them, it's a death cult. Hamas is a death cult. Either we kill the Israelis and that's good, or they kill Palestinians. And that's also good because it gives us a tremendous propaganda victory. But it is not
0: disproportional. It's it's, a silly use of the term proportionality. I mean, how do you take the higher ground constantly when your opponent is always taking the lower ground?
5: Well, that is the principle of distinction, since they're not following the rules of war by remaining apart from civilians, those deaths are attributable to Hamas. They're not Israeli deaths. They're not attributable to Israel. They're attributable to Hamas for locating its military things in schools, in hospitals, and so forth and so on. Uh, They're absolutely oblivious. Israel has suffered so many casualties because of its desire to prevent uh, civilian deaths. Richard Kemp, who was the, the head of special forces in, in Afghanistan, UN special forces in Afghanistan, said no country in the history of war has ever taken the degree of precautions that Israel takes to prevent civilian casualties. But there will be civilian casualties, especially when Hamas adheres to no none of the rules of law, including the principle of distinction.
0: Now, now, Jonathan, we, we've been talking about the citizens of Gaza as being innocent. Is that your take that they're innocent? They did elect Hamas and uh, they certainly haven't overthrown them. Um, so should we be viewing them as innocent individuals or each one, even if they're currently haven't uh, taken up arms, they each have a potential risk to us of being a potential terrorist?
5: Well, we can't kill them because they might be potential terrorists. I mean, they still have a status of civilians. But to call them innocent, I think, is also innocent is what's used by those who hate Israel to say that it's killing innocent civilians. I mean, the fact of the matter is, when these captives were brought back to, uh when the captives were brought back to Gaza, uh, Israeli captives, Jewish captives were brought back to Gaza, there was exuberance in the streets, ululations, jubilance, you know. I think most of the population is thrilled by this. If Palestinian professors on American college campuses say this is the most exhilarating, astonishing thing that's happened, I think we can assume that the same is true of the population of Gaza. As you pointed out, they elected Hamas, they supplanted the uh, the Palestinian Authority, which was previously ruling in in Gaza. But, the, you know, to call them innocent is, is stretching it. I, right. I think I remember it at Auschwitz. The most horrifying room at Auschwitz is the room in which you see a large movie, maybe it's Lenny Richtenzfeld's uh, Triumph of the Will, where Germans are looking at Hitler, Yamach Shamo, or Goebbels, Yamach Shamo speaking with faces of absolute rapture, as they talk about destroying the international Jewish conspiracy, killing all the Jews. Absolute rapture. I think uh, that would be true with respect to the agenda of killing Jews. I think there are very few innocents in Gaza, but we ha- that doesn't mean we should willy-nilly wipe out the population of Gaza, that not. But to call them innocents is just a propaganda tool.
0: Right, so Jonathan, you mentioned objectives of war. And Israel always has an objective. So at this point, we maybe have dual objectives. We're in a situation we did not want to be in. We didn't put ourselves in. And now we have uh, the objective of removing Hamas. You cannot live with a neighbor that is constantly trying to kill you. But we also have the situation of Hamas, the terrorists holding 200, 250 captives of ours. And what what do you think the priority should be? Because there is a conflict between those two.
5: So I don't think we have any hope of getting the the captives out in the general course, I think our first priority has to be to remove Hamas. Because if Hamas is not removed, then the entire nation of Israel is a captive. We've lost the battle. Hamas will come back at us. The southern border communities in the Otev Gaza, around Gaza, will never be repopulated. Uh, people have, they've already evacuated the North, that puts us in a position which is simply untenable. You know, as many Israeli commentators, usually non-religious, have said, Israel was created so that Jews no longer have to cower in their in their closets. Without removing Hamas, without uh, deterring and returning Israel's deterrent uh, power, without some deterrence with respect to Iran and Hezbollah, then we are basically cowering. I don't think that we, I mean, they they took those captives for a reason. They will use them, uh, and uh, you know, as ISIS did, they will probably start. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't even want to speak out all the things that they could do. But in terms of priorities, that can't be the highest priority because it's such a, it's such a distant chance of. It, there's no Entebbe's on the horizon here. We don't have that they're they're all, spread all, out all over the place. We don't have the intelligence as of now to simply bring them back. And, you know, you remember the, uh, the soldier, uh, Nathan Waxman, who, you know, was one single soldier. They knew where he was, but, uh, you know, his captors killed him before they got to him. I think it would be very, this would be an almost impossible mission to think. The only way is if we destroy enough of Hamas's infrastructure, we may find captives alive, Bezrat Hashem. Bezrat Hashem, and maybe many. But at this point, uh, that can't be
0: our primary, primary concern. Right, right. That that makes sense. Let, let's talk about support of Israel, which is highly unusual. Typically, if Israel sneezes, uh, they are besmirched in the international community. Right now, we do have a number of foreign countries that are pro-Israel, but every day it changes and it depends on the pronouncements that they make. Uh, do you expect this to change over time, the support for Israel, or do you think they will stick with it?
5: Of course. No, of course. Dara Horn had a book last year called the world loves dead Jews. You know, as long as it's Jews getting killed, then we'll hear encomiums from them, from world leaders. The minute that Israel takes any response, and there are casualties, and there will be casualties, and there will be civilian casualties in Gaza, then everybody gets cold feet without acknowledging the in- impossible situation in which Israel exists. So, about I don't I don't put it, it's it's good that it happened. I don't put too much long, long-term store in it. And, you know, sometimes the embrace of the nations can be uh, debilitating for us, too. A too close embrace from the United States may restrain us from doing what what we ought to do. I don't put too much faith in it. The only thing that America could do for us that would be an immense help is to make an announcement that if Hezbollah attacks and Hezbollah unleashes masses of missiles on us, that they will hold iran responsible and iran will be in it, in in their sights and uh but i think the chances of the united states government which is the, through the three terms of the obama presidency followed a completely pro iran uh foreign policy doing that are almost uh, be unlikely zero but I that would be a big help
0: so yeah, absolutely so let's talk about some domestic issues the unfortunate, terrible attack on Simchastora. do you think that it had an impact, a change, an influence on Haredi attitudes towards the IDF in any way?
5: In warfare, in times of war in Israel, the Haredi community is fully involved, fully involved in the sense of davening, starting yeshivas early, not allowing people to go on Ben man, and so forth and so on. We are completely identified. We do believe that Klai Yisrael is one entity, one corporal body that that is responsible for one another. And we've always acted accordingly, davening for soldiers, sending food to soldiers, sending uh, uh, equipment. One of my sons is now in, uh, in the southern communities. Many of my sons, two of my sons already have driven to the Golan and to the north and to the south to deliver materials. That's something that's Always been true of the Haredi community, but I must tell you, let's be let's be straight about this. There is always a certain amount of discomfort. Uh, that's all very nice, but you know, the, last week I was at the, I had a medical procedure at Miskabeladach, and I have some friends across the street. I thought of going to visit them, and then I was outside their gate, and I thought to myself, you know, I can't really go visit them. They probably have four sons, umpty umpteen grandchildren. In the IDF right now, I have nothing like that. You know, I, I I I'd feel embarrassed. I think any sensitive person has to feel at least some sense of embarrassment that we're not in this in the same way. A friend of mine, I, I just came back from a Leviathan. and he told me it had been a Leviathan this morning of a mother who lost two sons, two twin sons in the initial attacks. That doesn't happen to us, you know. That doesn't happen to us, and. Needless to say I mean if Iran drops a nuclear weapon we'll all you know we'll all we're all equal targets and we'll all suffer equally but our children are not on the front lines and that has to create some kind of discomfort what's unique i think about this war is that some of the myths that we tell ourselves to justify the fact that we don't serve in the IDF and so forth there are a few myths there one is that they don't need us they have plenty of manpower. They could go to a volunteer army. Uh, the wars of the future will be fought by robots and, and drones and, the Haredi soldiers are not necessary. Manpower remains very crucial. Israel had to call up 360,000 reserves. If we had a volunteer army, there would be no reserves. Could be, there'd be nobody who has received any, any, uh, military training. One of the reasons that the southern border was so poorly defended is because troops have been moved to the West Bank to deal with a lot of, uh, terrorist attacks from the West Bank so it's not that we have so many soldiers that we don't know what to do with them and then that's even without taking moving soldiers to the northern to the northern front too we manpower remains very crucial and a very an Achilles tendon for Israel which is so is in the end of the day a small country and most of its forces are in the our reserves um so it's it's just that's a myth we should we should get out of telling ourselves that myth. Um, there are, you know, some of my sons have done university training. Some are, Baruch Hashem, full-time kolo learners. But I tell you, th- there is a desire on the part of many Haredi young men. They want to be Israeli and Haredi. They want to be part of the society in which they live and Haredi. Not to give up being Haredi, but to be Haredi in the same sense as a, as a yeshiva-trained uh, a uh, Lakewood product who goes to Harvard Law School and then goes to get a job on Wall Street. They want to be able to participate in the society. In Israeli society, as army service army service is, is is a fundamental. But interestingly, I think the army is showing some awareness of the fact that there is that desire to participate. There is that desire to contribute. We could do it. There are all kinds of ways that this could be done without taking boys out of learning for three straight years. And the army has now put out a call for Haredi volunteers to uh, to join the Pikuda Orif, to the civil defense, to get training, in uh, to be part of the civil defense. And that would be immensely helpful. And there are many, including one of my children, who have already signed up uh, to do that. And I think that's good. I think that during Bainaz Manim, getting some military training, if it works out, would be an excellent thing to do because many of our communities are extremely vulnerable. I have a son who lives in a in a community right adjacent to Lud, which is filled with Arabs who are loaded with guns, and they would walk into the adjacent community and not have any opposition because there's not a single gun in the place or a person who knows how to use a gun. But if you start getting some military training and having weapons, then th- th- you take away that vulnerability. I know that my son there feels extraordinarily vulnerable. And that's and and uh, the, the adjacent to Lud is not the only community. There are many, many throughout Israel. Uh, and I mean, I can name them, but it does, I don't want to.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, think yeah, I, I, I feel, I, I feel vulnerable in Shul as well. Th- thankfully, uh, we found somebody who does have a gun. He hadn't disclosed it to us. And I was always wondering why he stands right at the Bima looking around throughout davening. not throughout, but, uh, good part of it. And I just thought it was a little bit strange. And then I was talking with him. We, I said, we should really have a, a weapon in Shul. He's like, don't worry. I have you covered. And then the, as we say, the Asimon dropped and I understood that he was there. And he was guarding us, which well, uh, after you, the I mean,
5: Harnhof massacre, which was perpetrated by two Arab workers who worked in Harnhof. Uh, you know, I didn't go in a single day into Shul without looking where was the exit. There's usually not an exit, or there's one exit. If they came through that, there'd be no other way out, no weapons. Uh we all became hyper conscious. Now we've become a little bit less so. But the truth of the matter is the Arab riots in, in Israeli cities in twenty twenty uh twenty-one did alert us. Um there's one thing. That where the Haredi community can make a tremendous difference, and I and there are so many people looking to us. There, this is an ace rod zone for uh, reaching out and connecting. I just heard a, I just listened to a small clip yesterday of a woman calling to, into Chabad. She's crying on the phone. She says, "I want to light candles the Shabbos. I've never lit candles before. I don't know how to light candles. Will somebody come to me and teach me how to light candles?" You know, the more relationships that we have, the more relationships that we've developed, the more, they they will reach out. There will be a tremendous uh, turn towards religious observance at whatever level. I, I work with an organization called Kesher UD, which works with pre-induction academies to the army. Many of those Kavrusa shafts, which last for an entire year... Uh, people who were went through the program two to ten years ago are calling up their chavrutses now, and those chavrutses from the Haredi world are going to bases to visit them. They're cooking for them. They're arranging davening for them. They're they're learning with them. Uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary situation. It's it's it is an ace zone But if we don't create those relationships beforehand, I mean Kesher UD is, and other organizations have been about creating those relationships, personal one-on-one relationships. Then we can build on them. Then we have somebody to call in this time when our somebody you've learned with for a year is now on one of the fronts. You're in touch with him. You're talking to him. You're encouraging him. You're telling him how much he's on your mind. It could change the whole tenor of the way that there, the different sectors in this community think about it, uh, in Israel, think about one another. And if we don't seize that opportunity, and if we don't build for the future, because unfortunately here these opportunities are never far away, uh, it will be on our cheshbon.
0: Right. Now's the opportunity to reach out to basically anyone out there. Jonathan, one last question for you. What lesson should we learn from this war?
5: So many lessons, all right. But one, of one. Them has got to be. the In 1973, the concept of the security services was they would never dare attack us again after what happened in 1967. There were troop movements and movements on the Egyptian and Syrian borders. There were massive troops on those borders. And the, uh, the head of army security, Ignored it. The three chiefs of uh, of security here, at least three, have all taken, have all admitted their culpability. They had signals, they had, but they thought, well, oh, Hamas is just a bunch of primitives; they'll never be able to do it. And they didn't see how, how even with. Basic technology or uh, even drones could knock out this one billion, one point five billion dollar fence in a matter of moments. To to think that we're invulnerable, to think that our shiny new tech toys make us invulnerable—that we don't need the ribono shalom—that's that 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 is the biggest lesson. If if, if if we don't merit, and and we have to look at his chesed. Somebody just told me over Sfas Emes just came. He said the Sfas Emes says the sin of the Miraglim is that they wanted to go in. To Erz Israel, me meet us din, not me meet He said, Hashem's looking for a generation that believes in his rachamim, that feels his closeness. We should all feel that closeness, feel his love for us, and Bezrat Hashem on that basis uh, to go forward and to merit to, to not only to survive in Eretz
0: Israel, but to flourish. Amen. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Bye, Ari. Thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. David Fox. Rabbi Fox is a dian. He's also a forensic and clinical psychologist and also the director of crisis and trauma services for High Lifeline. Rabbi Fox, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you. It's very nice to be in touch with you again.
0: Rabbi Fox, this is obviously a very important conversation. Maybe I should call you Dr. Fox for for today. I'm in Yushalayim. I live in Yushalayim. And and I know the feeling is, I would say, very similar to Tisha Buff. And it's um, we're down, we're depressed, people are saying hello to each other. It's not to the extent of not even saying hello, but there's not a lot of simcha in the air. And and, uh, why don't we start off with, what's a normal feeling that we should be feeling about the tragedy, about the tragic times that we're, we're living through?
6: So virtually any distressing reaction, emotion, or thought or even physical state, and even for some, a spiritual change would be normal, the abnormality that we're facing right now. So there are very few reactions that we will see in ourselves or in others, adults or children, which would be classified as abnormal reactions. People are sad, people are enraged, people are numb, people are confused, Mm -hmm. people are frightened. People are anxious. People are sleepless or don't want to get out of bed. People are not hungry or are nauseous. And again, in, in thought, in feeling, in body, in conduct, and even for some in our spiritual balance, there are a, a wide range of reactions which clinically are not abnormal.
0: Okay, So, so given that What is an effective way to help us process the trauma that we're experiencing right now?
6: I think process is an excellent word because there are a number of uh, essential steps when we're in the midst of having reactions to crisis, particularly catastrophic, traumatizing crisis. Our first key is always self-awareness, which means we all must be engaged in self-care, which starts... With taking the time to be reflective alone and to observe and acknowledge the different reactions that are going on inside of us. Again, observing our thoughts, listening to what's going on in the mind, whether it's ideas, whether it's images whether it's difficulty focusing or concentrating, but what's happening to us cognitively, and then observing what are the emotions that are coming to the surface. And we outlined a number of them already. Uh, We do need to peer gently into our physical well-being, what's hurting, what's aching, what's not feeling right. Um, We want to notice whether there are any things that are affecting our conduct, are we noticing we're more irritable or less patient or we're more withdrawn? And then many of us also want to do that careful, non analytic, open minded observing of what's happening inside of our souls. Are we feeling estranged from Hashem? Are we really yearning to look for ways to feel that we can? be close to him? Are we trying to talk with him? Um, But but our spirit gets affected. So I think our first step in what you're calling the processing is the self-awareness. And the second step is we all must acknowledge and accept that we're reacting. My adage clinically is it's normal to have a reaction. It's not particularly normal to have no reaction. So people can feel that, well, I'm numb, or people sometimes will say, Look, it's not bothering me. I'm coping fine. I have complete himunah. Um But the reality is that uh, Hashem circuited us to have reactions during difficult times. Um, the Avos had reactions, David Amelech had reactions. And yes, they were a different type of person with a loftier spiritual ascendancy. But we are circuited to be feeling people, to have to have sensations, to have thoughts, um, and we, we acknowledge them, our next step is audibly to express, preferably to express with someone who cares about us and whom we trust and someone that we care about with whom we can just ventilate and express what's going on inside of ourselves. It's very important to be self-aware, but it's also extremely important to then be able to express it because to externalize a lot of commotion by channeling it into words, I then have a little more structure and control over those reactions. Some of the intensity of my fear or my sadness or my anger is going to dissipate because I'm able to talk it through there are so, Makoris and Chazal that support that, and clinically lahab though well, that's very uh, very apparent too. So that,
0: that, would be, that would be
6: Yeshichena l'acher. There's a magnificent Shalaha Kodesh cited by the Chasam Sofer and Pashas Vayichal and the Pasuk V'yanachem Hashem which is eye-opening about that same notion, uh, but to be able to confide and if you are that supportive listener who someone says, uh, Rabbi Wasserman, Ari, um, can I talk with you about what's going on inside of me? If you're the one who's doing that supportive listening. So the rule is, I want to listen, not judgmentally, not critically. I don't want to try to cheer you up or talk you out of your reactions. I don't want to distract mm-hmm. you from the reality that you're going through right now. And I want to listen supportively, I want to reflect. I want to validate That, yes, you're going through frightening times, and you're feeling the fright, or you're going through sad times, and yes, you're feeling the sadness. I really just want to echo back to the person who's opening up to me that the feelings you're having are very, very almost appropriate, almost adaptive, given the external stressor. Uh, Now, there are other processing steps people can take, which means it's not all about the intellect processing it cognitively. Uh, We do want to do some self-soothing to center or ground ourselves. That can involve breathing differently. That can involve being mindful of different physical sensations. It definitely involves self-care like proper hydration, proper nourishment, proper exercise. Uh, But we really want to look at those five dimensions of self. Be self-aware, self-express, and to try decreasing the intensity that we're feeling, Um, most people um, who will process through those steps, the large majority of people, um, over time, will not sink into deeper depressions, will not fall into the so-called PTSD, the -the after-the-trauma distress. Most people won't. Um, It's almost like we can upgrade trauma into crisis which is a lower level of misery but but there's a horrible caveat here and that is that the the atrocities that you're hearing about and some of you are viewing um and that you're surrounded by at this time um they are to use an old word they're unprecedented meaning we thought this went out with the 1940s or with the Inquisition, or with the pogroms in Russia, or with the Crusades, but it's back. And the majority of people have never had to confront this before. And that in itself is called massive trauma. That's a massive trauma. It's
0: back and we're the victims.
6: We, We are victims, even those who are witnessing this remotely are part of the victimization. The fact that there's active campaigns to harness the social media to expose people to the gore and to the rape and to the mutilation. So that makes every viewer into a victim.
0: So Rabbi Rabbi Fox, along those lines, because we're talking about maintaining healthy mental health, Obviously, a negative then is having access, viewing this news coverage, the negative news coverage, seeing the graphic pictures and the like. So what are your thoughts on is it a positive or is a negative having that exposure to the news coverage, uh, exposure to various types of media, videos, etc.? Is that something that we should limit, we should manage, manage decrease or do without?
6: So I have very definite neuroscience opinions about this beyond my rabbinic outlook. And I'll be very candid with you. I believe that children should absolutely not be viewing visual media of that sort. And adults should strictly limit how much they're preoccupied with that imagery because these images etch into your brain and the brain doesn't give them up because they're so grotesque. The brain keeps going back to what you saw. And what happens is this begins draining your mood energy, which means people feel the weight of depression. And this increases people's distraction, difficulty attending, focusing, concentrating, which definitely is not good for school children. But adults also need to maintain clarity and focus. And that's gone. Because we keep going back to the horrors of what we saw. Thirdly, we become more irritable because we don't like what we're seeing, yet there's a sort of what the Germans called Schadenfreude. There becomes a sort of fascination looking at other people's pain and suffering. And we keep going back to this and the fact that it's inhumane that confronts whatever Compassion or empathy or humanity that we have. So, what comes out is that we're sort of betraying our own virtue and our own value, and we become impatient and irritable and more angry. And then, the fourth casualty is probably the worst that with time, both adults and children who are overexposed to horrible imagery, we become desensitized to other people's suffering. It almost becomes like a morbid entertainment. And we're no longer feeling the Nazi propaganda minister in the Second World War says that if you kill one Jew, the world looks at that as an act of murder. But if you kill hundreds of thousands of Jews, well, that's just that's a statistic. It doesn't register. It's not real because it's big numbers. And and there's there's a parallel to that that. If a person is just flooding the brain with image after image after image after a while, it just becomes bodies. It's not people. It becomes right. corporate. So, uh, yeah. So practically
0: speaking, how do we go about controlling ourselves? I, I called a neighbor of mine to see how he was doing. He's a he's a elderly gentleman gentleman in his eighties, and he's taking care of a very sick wife. And I wanted to check in with him. See how he's doing. And I said, uh, "How you feeling? Do you need anything?" And he said, I'm okay. And the most difficult thing for me is that I can't help. I fought through six wars. This is Israeli. I fought through six wars. And now all I can do is sit and I can't get away from my television. So how do you control yourself? Because I, I don't know if it's an addiction or it's a, it, we're pulled or 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 we're controlled by it somehow. So how do you put on the brakes? I guess we have a similar question for using social media.
6: Yeah. So the lull into passivity, which is what media and television offer us, which means we don't have to do the working, it's doing the talking and the thinking for us. It does put the brain into this almost addicted state that like, why bother doing anything else? It can be done on my screen for me. I don't even have to think. I don't have to form my own opinion because I'm being told what to think. So it's just very unhelpful at a time like this. And what I would say is, in general, that rather than feel helpless or feel that there's nothing they can do, find some activism that you can do. This person you spoke to who survived six wars or whatever it was, it's magnificent. But if he's not a soldier now and he can't get out there and fight or whatever is blocking him from taking that activism, there, there are plenty of things people can engage in which are productive and which are helping others. Right. right. My grand, my granddaughters are baking cookies and sending them to soldiers, and and helpfulness is an antidote for feeling helpless. And and whatever that helpfulness is, whatever that activity, that productivity, if it's learning, if it's saying to Hillam, if it's going out and saying good morning and good job to people, if it's expressing gratitude when something nice happens, but we don't want to settle into that passive state. It makes us more vulnerable for depression.
0: Right. That's a very important point. My son today was making tits for the chayalim. So they had a mm-hmm. group of boys making tits today. I want to change gears a little bit, and, and maybe this relates to how to help process things, to, to have, to hear the stories. And this has been talked about by by Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and, and many people about the sadistic acts of Hamas. And, and, and part of the difficulty of processing is to think about human nature. How does somebody go about doing acts of that nature, barbarians? So how, how do we come to, to grips with that? Is this something that is endemic to human nature? Is this something that... A Jew could come and do. How do we think about these things? Because it's such a traumatic part of what's going on to know that that these acts have been done.
6: Yeah. So, firstly, anything that I am capable of fantasizing about, someone else is capable of doing. Secondly, let's go to the Drushas because Rabbeinu Nisim tells us that there's a reason that on the sixth day of creation, that human beings were created. Along with the beasts and the animals. And the reason, says the run, is that nothing else in the prior days of Genesis can make changes. A tree can't become a fish. The sun can't become a river. Darkness can't become a bird. But human beings can become animals. This is the Drushas Haran. We're paired with the Chayas and the Bahamas because we can become like them. And we were the last creature formed because our mission is to move away from the mundane and to ascend closer and closer to being the way Hashem wants us to be, to walk in His ways and those more divine heaven-centered lifestyles. But we can give all that up. We can even give that up under the guise of being religiously zealous, and we can become animals and beasts. And that potential, says the run, is in all of us. Um, a goldfish can't become a piranha, and an apple tree can't become a banana tree. Um, nothing else in the Bria can change. And a Bahama and a Haya cannot become anything other than stay Bahamas and highest, but we human beings can become Hayas. And this, this is the Especially when it's done under the banner of. Of this is what my religion demands of me, especially when it's done with the rationalization that the people I'm killing aren't people anyway.
0: So, th- this is not about sadistic personality disorder. This is more of a generic human nature type of thing. And they have been cultivated through their education, through their education system, through their religious beliefs, through their religious upbringing, that not only is this not wrong, but it's a mitzvah.
6: Um, I I like the way you framed it. I might cautiously amend one piece, and I would say just looking at the research that was done on the Nuremberg criminals after the Second World War, the, the psychological research that was done, it's quite possible that the leaders are Ones whom you would call sadistic personalities, uh, the rank and file who really are swept into the zealousness and into the hysteria and the dogma that we're doing the will of whoever they they, they believe in. So, uh, I don't think they reach the level of sadistic personality. I think they descend to the level of chaos.
0: That's a very important proviso. Yeah. Rabbi Dr. Fox, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I have learned a tremendous amount, and this has been very therapeutic for me, I must say. So I really appreciate you joining us today.
6: My honor. Take care and continue the wonderful work you're doing. And we should have uh, not only the basuras Tovas and the Yeshuas, but we're going to need a lot of nahamas also.
0: Thank you so much.
6: Take care. Bye-bye. Joining us
0: now is Rabbi Daniel Wasserman. Rabbi Wasserman was previously a rabbi in Pittsburgh for 25 years and various other locations before that. He made Aliyah over a year ago to Ashdod, which is around 25 miles from the Gaza Strip. In addition, Rabbi Wasserman is my first cousin, but during this interview, I will nonetheless call him Rabbi Wasserman. Rabbi Wasserman, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So, Rabbi Wasserman, what's the mood in Ashdod? You're pretty close to the Gaza Strip. So, uh, what's the word on the street? How are people feeling about uh, what's going on?
4: The mood is not cavalier, but it's it's measured. We've we've had. Uh instances, um, almost daily, where we've had to go into the mamahad, go into the safe rooms. But frankly, uh, there are also have been a number of instances where there have been impromptu pepper rallies. I was involved in a couple of them, where people just come out of their houses and sing and dance and, you know, b'nei <speaking in Spanish> From, not from, don't make a difference.
0: Doesn't matter, everyone together. Yep. So a lot of mood swings.
4: yeah. I mean, again, it's it's a little nerve wracking. Everyone goes
6: differently.
4: Um Ishisra Everybody has to reach out and help each other. Um and uh again, like just uh, three hours ago, uh I was filling up gas in the gas station, my daughter was in the car, a siren went off, so we got out of the car, we looked at the gas station attendant, where do we go? He pointed, we went. So we uh, we spent a few minutes bonding with the gas station attendant.
0: All right, that's uh, that's an experience in and of itself. Yes. Uh, Rabbi Wasserman, walk us through what have you been spending your time on since in Chastar, Typically you give a lot of shirim, you give a daf yomi, and you have a lot of community involvement. But I think lives have been turned upside down. Routines and schedules have been turned upside down since the Simcha Star attack. So walk us through, do you have a schedule, routine, and what have you been involved with?
4: So on the one hand, the routine's been regular. I still give me in the morning. Um, shul, making sure there's a minion in shul morning and night, which is terribly important. And the the school I teach in a little bit uh, is obviously off was obviously off this past week, so that element of my schedule was not regular. Um, we Baruch Hashem for Simchas Torah had uh, some of our children and grandchildren here, and they decided to stay throughout the entire week. So Baruch Hashem, we had a lot of children underfoot, which was good and wonderful. A little bit challenging when the when the siren goes off, but if if the adults stay calm, the children stay calm, uh, and other than that. The regular shopping and checking on people and, and, uh, you know, giving reports to people. Uh, Everybody wants to know, uh, you know, from the United States, for example, through social media or direct messages. How are you? How are you? So I I, saying we're fine. Thank God. Everyone's good.
0: so I I did call you uh, a couple of days, a few days ago, and you said you were in Herzliya involved in something. So what, what was going on there?
4: So one of the things I personally have been trying to do is trying to find a way to help. Um, I, I, I can't serve in the military even though I would, both because I'm an ole and I'm my age and I don't have pre- previous experience. So I've been calling around trying to find things that I can help with. I oh, blows up day and night. I'm on a number of lists, transportation of supplies list, i'm I also signed up for a uh um a rapid response list when they need help preparing graves in military cemeteries um so one day this week I had this list to uh, to go do that. Uh, then it hurts Ramat and then it hurts Aliyah, um, to go do that. And uh, I, I still check it every day to see when I'm able to do that. Um, I've gotten in touch with Zach. I've gotten in touch with the local Heber Kadisha because of my experience in Heber Kadisha. I, I could be a help, but I can appreciate they don't know me from Adam. And just bringing somebody on in the middle is not helpful. Um, but I, I've been spending a lot of time trying to find things to help with just like many 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 other people are doing
0: ah, very good so uh digging graves that's a unique uh, area to be looking to and obviously there's a lot of need in that al-itzlan. Um what are some of the questions that you've been getting yes, what are some of the questions that you've been getting in Eretz israel or outside of Eretz israel uh questions people have asking calling you uh contacting you for
4: most of the questions are are you okay and what can we do to help from outside of Eretz Um the inside Eretz Yisrael. So there's been, I, I don't have an official position here, but we do have connections already with people, especially some of the, the Anglos here in, uh, in Ashdod. Um, so there has been a little bit of handholding. There has been a little bit of, should I stay? Should I move out of Ashdod? Um, and, and, All the time, it's they just need a little encouragement. Uh, Like the individual called me and asked me, Should I be, should I think about moving out? Um, when I got done, she said, That's what I thought. I needed to hear it. Um, I had somebody from America that I have a relationship with, a medical person that I have a relationship with. The short of it is, Should I, um, should I try to come now and help? But I'm planning to make Aliyah in the summer. And if I come now, then uh it'll mess up my Aliyah uh, um, procedure uh in in the summer. And is it better to come now or is it better to not uh, to continue what I'm doing and make Aliyah in the summer? So those are the those are the questions, but mostly are you okay and is there anything we can do to help?
0: So those are nice calls to receive people. People are thinking about you. Think that's a, that's yes.
4: nice. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And and it's an unknown. You know, Americans anyway are geographically challenged. I remember when we were making Aliyah. So they said, Ashdod, Ashdod, that, that's so close to Gaza. You should go to Ashkelon where, where there are Americans. And that's not as close to Gaza. I said, look at a map, my friend. <laughs> Ashkelon is, is 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers closer to Gaza than Ashdod. So it's an unknown. A lot of people in America, and I had this when I was in America during Tsuketan, have the red alert app. And it goes off when there are alerts. And they don't know the difference between it went off in Tel Aviv or Naharia or Ashdod or Ashkelon or Stelo Toberi or, or they don't know where it is. So when they see Ash when they see Ashdod, I are you okay? So what I started doing now, other than obviously posting to family chats every time there's a there's a siren we have to go in, so we post we're okay checking in. And of course, our children in, in area A, they check in and 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 our aunt in Rehovot checks in, so uh, I started posting on social media, um, and I try to do it in a in a comical way, not a not a flip way, but you know we're all good. Like today, um, the two sirens. So one I posted. Um, uh, the teacher gave us a timeout in the safe room, but we're all good. And then I then I the second time it happened at the gas station. I said you know, I'm bonding with a gas station attendant, but everything's fine because I, I, I it's very. Uh, I will admit to you that. It was troublesome seeing Jews leaving Eretz Yisrael and using the uh, the term evacuating or escaping. The heart's Tia plata. This is home. This is where we belong. This is where you run to when you're in trouble. Not Khalilah. Right? You're running back to Columbia University in Harvard? That, that, that's where Jews are running back to? To the University of Pennsylvania? To so the congressional districts that that sent these guys, okay, it's a minority, but it's loud. Who are oh the poor, the poor Hamas and the poor Palestinians? That's where you're running to. So I'm going home to be with my family. I got you, no problem. Um, I want to make sure people understand. You know, like says that, uh, the, that there were, they would go and they would, they would move rocks from the streets. And when they were giving sheer, they would take in, and when it was hot, they would go and move to the shade. And when it was cold, they would move to the sun. Just somebody shouldn't say something negative about her. So I, I, I want to make sure people understand that. Okay, we're going through this and it's difficult. And we haven't even begun to really internalize the, uh, the the massacre that happened on day one um for a lot of reasons primarily primary of which is there's a war to be won and hamas has to be wiped off the face of the earth that is our mission but but it's eretz yisrael and it's home and baruch hashem the Rabbi yisrael, was with us and he gave us the iron dome it's not perfect but it's important, and we have safe rooms, and we have the Chayol Eitzvah Ali Israel that defend every single Yid in the world. Whether you're in New York, or in Los Angeles, or in Eretz Yisrael, you think without Sahel without there'd be such a thing. I, I, I sent out a video, Ramim in the Yeshiva, that I teach, that I mobilize. So first of all, no kid, no kid misbehaves in their classes. But secondly, these are great holy people. And, uh, and I want people to understand, keep making your plans during Yeshiva Week to come and visit. Make your Aliyah plans. Don't be fooled into thinking that America is, air quotes, safe, and Eretz Israel is somehow dangerous, you know? So that I try to do that my own little way, by, by speaking to people, social media, whatever it is.
0: Let me ask one final question. You were the rabbi of a large shul in Pittsburgh when a shooter attacked a different synagogue.
4: Let me correct you. Let me correct you and don't edit this correction out. A murderer, not a shooter. Hamas are not militants. They are terrorists. Bowers was not a shooter. A shooter is someone who's in a gallery. He was a murderer.
0: A terrorist. Uh, so yes. he in In 2018, murdered 11 victims, innocent victims on a Shabbos. And you spent quite a lot of time as the head of the Hevra Kadisha dealing with the issues, collecting body parts and the like. And uh, is that something that you've been thinking about over the past number of days? And can you compare your emotions during both of those attacks?
4: So, of course, I go back there. I mean, the truth is, I, I, I close my eyes. I still see them laying there in Pittsburgh because it was personal, it was upfront. They knew a number of the individuals personally. In some ways it's very much the same, in some ways it's very, very different. Obviously the scope is different. Obviously, because that was 11 and this is, the number keeps climbing. There it was horrific, but they weren't butchered. Here, children were butchered. Some of the experience was the same, frankly. And one thing I learned that day in Pittsburgh, I knew it, but I experienced it, is that the, the, the initial reports are all wrong. We unfortunately live in a world where we have allowed the media to just get it out there even without verifying. And we accept that, and it's it's unacceptable. But uh, I remember that day, reports were coming in, and people with phones. Eh, say, here too, some chastorah, we were in shul. And I remember it started at 6.30 in the morning, 6.15, 6.30 in the morning. So generally on Shabbos, I go to a Vasikan Minion for Shacharis, just for Shacharis. Then I go give a sheer. Then I go to the shul. I I have a busy Shabbos. So I was at the Vasikan Minion and it was, it was the first Shabbos in months that I was cool. Ashtod um, is, is hotter. And I, I love the cool, I love the cold. So people back in Pittsburgh, the early Minyan, know that a lot of times in the fall and in the winter, I used to dab in Zimra outside because I just, I just like davening in the cold air. So, and then I would go inside for once we got the Nishmas. So I was standing, for the first time in months, I was standing outside the shul, same saying Zimra. And it's a one room shul. And the whole building is one room. And uh, I heard a boom. I think it was a sonic boom, something. A few minutes later, I heard another boom, and I started looking up and wondering, is, is, this, is this an attack? And then the siren went off, and then a whole series of, of events. But, in, but when I went to shul, so the hakafas, there were only 25 people there. A lot of people didn't come, but they were amazing. And with each siren, there were like seven eight sirens that went off during, during davening throughout the morning. Each siren, we had to go to the Merchah mugan and come, right. we danced louder. And then we started the seventh, of kofa, the shul always goes outside, and the neighbors from the balconies, they clap and they throw candies. And to, to some of them not from the neighbors. That's their whole So we started going outside. There was a siren. We stopped, but then we knew there'd be a 15-minute lull. So we went outside. We had that kofa outside. It was wonderful. It was tremendous. And reports started filtering in, and I purposely didn't pay them any heat because I knew, again, initial reports. Nobody knew. Nobody what. Let's I opened up my phone, and and then you know the horror started descending. So in that respect, it was the same. Uh, the, that day in Pittsburgh, we had four hundred people in for a bar mitzvah. And we didn't know what was going on. And we had to continue to, but we couldn't mess up the bar mitzvah. So it was a balancing act that, uh, you know, a lot of times I do things. People say, is that, that, is that what a rabbi does? I said, yeah, this was 50 year rabbi school. And this wasn't on the curriculum that day. I made it up. I had to learn it on the spot. So in that respect, it was the same. In another respect, it's not because nobody in Eretz Yisrael was more than one or two degrees separated from someone who's in the army, Nebuchadnezzar, somebody who fell, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's not as personal. It's not on my street. And I hope it won't become personal. None of us ever knows. Um, so there are, there are there are similarities. There are differences. And we had the kids here. So I wasn't going to sit and on the computer and look at all the graphics stuff when, when we have kids all around. So in some ways, it's the same. In some ways, it's different. One of the ways it's very different as you said i was i was one of the heads of the kharakadisha for the for the many days after the the massacre in pittsburgh i was vi- i was busy talking to the newspapers talking to the fbi multiple times a day dealing with it uh, helping arrange the shmirah and i was not the only one there were many people um, dealing with the outsiders who came in you know that's one thing i learned that experience don't show up You're not helping anybody by showing up, which is why I've spent this week trying to get in touch with people what can I do? And I've told people, I'll clean toilets if that will help. I don't care. I want to help, but just to show up—that doesn't help anybody. And that's been the frustrating part this week. I want to do. I want to help. And I'm still a bit of an outsider here, and especially in the area of Chavrut which, again, I have experience with. Um, and and I'd like to be able to help. But also, one thing you know, years in the rabbinate has learned: there are people who are going to need help for weeks and months and years. Whenever this is over, and we don't know what over means yet, but whenever this is over, there'll still be people who need help. So I will keep looking, and everybody will keep looking. And when something comes up, so so we'll go, and we'll try to help.
0: Really, Yasha for your great attitude. Mirz uh, Hashem, people will contact headlines when they have needs, and uh, Rabbi Daniel Wasserman is available to help. Very skilled, experienced drugs. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't recommend the cleaning of the toilets. I can do that, but uh, I think you should do the, the more uh, significant things. So, yeah. there,
4: is, there is no chesed beneath anyone.
0: Very good. Rabbi Wasserman.
4: All right. Be well, Rabbi Thank you, and stay safe.
0: Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeshekoach. All right. Thanks. See you all. Bye. Joining us now is Professor Claude Baraby. Professor Baraby is a professor of economics and public policy at the Hebrew University School of Public Policy. He has a specialty in terrorism and counterterrorism research, which has been cited extensively in numerous prestigious journals. His Ph.D. is in economics from Princeton University, and he has a whole handful of other degrees as well. Professor Baraby, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So Professor Barabi, we wanted to get a little bit background. We've had a terrible attack from Hamas or Hamas and wanted to understand what's going on. And in particular, with your specialty being both economics and terrorism, I've heard many people claim that the terrorism of Hamas is a result of the lack of economic opportunities in Gaza. And the question really is what motivates terrorists? Is it really that they have no career, that they have no financial future? Is that what brings them to terrorism? Or is there something that else? Else that is going on here.
1: Okay, so uh, you touched on a very important point because there is a huge misconception, huge mis- misunderstanding uh, that I believe uh, stems from mainly uh, from the fact that we tend, we have a tendency to interpret behavior uh, within some set of cultural uh, system of belief, of goals, of endeavors, of values that are similar to our own. And that's 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 really a, a, a no-no of a very big a, a, a mistake to do. It basically calls or, or brings you to the state in which you are trapped in a Western liberal mindset that Creates a huge conceptual gap uh, between what your opponent, your adversary, your enemy is thinking, and yourself. And in this case, it's just one of those examples. So we, uh, the Western society, the liberal society, uh, think that if uh, economic opportunities will be better, if if economic situation will, will be great. If there will be some economic stability, then things will be better also on other scales. And actually, uh, many, many uh, theorists, many also economists and and political scientists and also uh, politicians and uh, and decision makers uh, have held to those beliefs. And in doing so so they said okay then let's let's improve economic conditions and they will see that they have a lot to lose and it makes sense to us so if we were in that position we wouldn't actually hurt our ability to get uh, all those economic perks now the only problem with this theory except for the fact that it's actually uh, uh, something that that we have developed out out, out of our own a conceptual system out out of our own culture and not theirs is that it's not supported in the data. Now let's put it that way. I'm I'm an empirical economist. I tend to let the numbers speak for themselves. I I prefer to have the data tell me what's going on and not my own theories or my own hopes. And 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 uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, but basically those things that that I would like to happen uh, instead of of reality.
0: So what, what, what you're saying so far is that we're we're talking different languages with, with them, and we're thinking that they speak our language, but they're speaking a totally different language.
1: Yes, and it's not only the language; it's also what they believe in. I mean, if you think about it. I mean, if, if we take, you know, the, the structure, the structure that typical economists use, it's, it's the utility function. Our utility functions are completely different. Okay. The things okay. that makes us happy, that gives us higher utility are completely different than the ones that, uh, uh gives them a higher, uh, utility. And I, I now, guess
0: that's when you hear uh, some of the Hamas leaders speak to motivate their people they they look down upon us saying these jews they love life and we love death and that is such a different belief system that's exactly so now so walk us through the numbers what do the numbers
1: say so so the numbers i mean i've started researching this topic uh, pretty much uh, since my phd uh, just after 9 11 in the. US and uh, I've looked at the numbers uh, in in the israeli-palestinian conflict as well uh, looking at what was at the time the second Intifada and also uh, terrorist later uh, and the bottom line is 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 like that at the micro level the micro level the individual level terrorists tend to be better educated and wealthier than the average fuck in their uh, own communities. So they tend to be the richer, better off, I would say, middle class and higher within their own societies.
0: Does that mean that if we're pumping money and education into their system, we're creating a
1: bigger terrorism problem? Okay, so the thing is that those numbers, the ones that I've just told you, it's not only the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, pretty much terrorists everywhere, and many, many researchers have looked at it and and were completely puzzled. And the first idea was that, yeah, potentially there is a Robin Hood effect. The Robin Hood effect is the effect of the noble, rich person that actually acts on behalf of a certain society that he feels or she feels is uh, deprived and depressed. So it's not that Robin Hood himself needed the lands or the money. He was rich and he had everything he wanted. However, he was fighting for the poor. He was stealing from the rich and giving it to the poor. So the analogy is that those terrorists, even though they are rich and well-educated, they act on behalf of poverty and and, and ignorance in their own society. The problem with that is that's not supported in the data either. When we look at macro-level data, when we look at economic conditions overall, including of the poorest people in society, we see that actually uh, levels of terrorism tend to uh, correlate with better economic condition, not with deteriorating economic condition. Uh, You know, just... So to give you a a, a very, very blunt, since we don't have uh, the graphs and the numbers here, uh, I can give you just a timeline, a very easy timeline. Uh, The Oslo Accords in 93 uh, brought to the area uh, huge investments, billions and billions of dollars from the EU, the US uh, and, and many other countries. By 2000, about seven years later, The economic situation or the economic conditions in the Palestinian uh, areas was the best that it has ever been by then. And that's exactly when the second intifada erupted. Now you would say, okay, maybe, maybe it's a, it's a coincidence. But when you look at it, when did the second intifada end? It ended exactly when the Palestinian Authority, when the Palestinian Uh, uh, areas were at their worst condition in 2005, 2006. That's basically when they reached peaks of 60%, 70% 60%, 70% unemployment. They had no food to put on the table. That's when the Intifada basically disappeared, ended up. Now, there were a lot of other things going on as well at the same time. But this only gives you one big blunt example of the macroeconomic conditions. Now, it's not to say that economics doesn't play a role at all. We have a, a study that shows that economic deteriorating economic conditions help terrorist organization recruit better quality terrorists. So basically, some people who are potentially more able and unavailable at regular time, when when economic conditions are very bad, they can be recruited to terrorist activity, and that makes things worse. However, in the same study, we found that the number of attacks doesn't change based on economic conditions, meaning the decision whether or not to attack is not an economic one. It is a decision that is made by the terrorist organization based on political agenda, on ideology, on other things, but not due to economic uh, circumstances. The economic circumstances help them uh, recruit better or lesser terrorists uh, in terms of their quality. However, it doesn't mean that that's the driver behind the attacks. And Moreover, is that the ones who actually are able to take advantage of deteriorating economic conditions are exactly those terrorist organizations that also provide what we call public services, exclusive public services, like Hamas. Hamas provides exclusive public services to their own members, to their own affiliates. And like, like, like schools, hospitals. Exactly so. The schools and hospitals and and sometimes it's it's uh, uh, special lines certain uh, uh, areas public areas and and all of those things that they provide create a system of loyalty that helps them basically do whatever they want when it comes to terrorism so when th- that's an answer to another question but actually when people ask me okay now we are in giving money or we are investing only in humanitarian infrastructure, for example. We are giving only money to schools or only money to hospitals. That's a good thing, doesn't it? No. The problem is it's a good thing if you are giving it, but you are also administrating it. But if you're giving it to some organization like Hamas, and they are the one who actually give the services, be it hospitals, be it Schools, they will also use it for their other activity, and if their other activities are things like terrorism, then be sure that your money that goes to support an hospital is also in a way supporting terrorism. So that's, Even more that's so- a very important. That's a that's a very important message that that I don't think people think through completely when when they think about the situation.
0: I agree with that. I agree even more so schooling because they're teaching hatred of Jews in the schooling. So they're really uh, indoctrinating their views into society. So what what I'm hearing, um, Professor Paraby, is that economics, for the most part, has an inverse relationship to terrorism. It's not that uh, when the times are bad, terrorism kicks in but when the times are good terrorism kicks in other than the detail of but they'll be able to recruit better terrorists when 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 the times are bad but so if call it to, if excuse me if economics is not having a large impact and in fact the more money qatar and others pump in that's creating more terrorism what do you think motivates drives Hamas, their leaders, their terrorists. Is it ideological? Is it political? Is it religious? Is it payments given to martyrs? That's more the PLO. What's the big motivation? What's guiding them in, in their, uh, in their fight against Israel right now?
1: Okay. So, so it's a very complex question and, and. Obviously, we don't know the exact answer, and probably the answer is not only one thing. However, my my uh, my PhD advisor Alan Kruger, God bless his soul, he wrote a, a book, "What Makes a Terrorist," in which, uh, by the end, if you will, if you if you summarize the findings, he equates terrorism to violent political activism on 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 steroids, if you will. And and that's basically that's basically it. if you think about it, uh, political activism uh, is mainly done by wealthier people, better educated people, people with a very strong opinion based on a very strong ideology. And terrorism is pretty much the same. So at the end of the day, this is an ideology, and it's uh, fueled by a lot of teaching and a lot of schooling that is obviously uh, uh, not uh, uh, an appeasing one so it's it's all about hatred and stuff like that we've seen that in the in the school books we've seen that uh, later on in university uh, clubs and and and, uh, and classes uh, uh, in the Gaza Strip and actually unfortunately also in the Palestinian Authority in the, in, uh, in the West Bank but when you take it all together those things, a, a fuel an ideology and it's not economic conditions that that can actually change that now it it doesn't mean I mean economic conditions channeled in a, in the right way or with proper background education could do uh, wonders however just giving the money and forgetting about it hoping that they will do the best of it and they will uh, by themselves choose to uh, uh, teach what we would have liked them to teach learn the messages and the and the and the uh, values that we believe in th- that's kind of uh, naive I mean it's uh, it's really thinking that someone will do the job for you I I was also asked you know in in the past I was asked uh, so what should we do I don't have a short-term answer uh, the long-term answer and I, the 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 sad thing is that I already said that uh, almost 20 years ago, and if they have, if they would have done that at the time, by now we would not probably have the same problems that we have right now, because those uh, 20, 22 years old young terrorists would have been already indoctrinated in the right way. So basically, to the the liberal Western values, the values that love life. You know, it doesn't have to be Western values, but it it should be at least those values that that cherish life, that wants prosperity, that thinks about their families and don't only think about ideologies of uh, of, uh, afterlife. And hatred. And hatred, exactly.
0: Right, so one last question for you. It seems that... Politicians don't get this because what I was hearing, how Hamas lulled the Israelis into believing that there was detente and peace between the the groups was that they were feigning, they were faking having interest in economic prosperity and they're being offered perks and benefits on an economic basis. They feigned, they faked being interested in. And and that seems to be what the uh, politicians bought into. But now what you're saying is it's irrelevant, the economic perks and benefits to creating a peaceful environment.
1: I think it's even worse. I mean, it's not that they, they were faking and the politicians uh, bought into that. It's that basically they looked at the politicians and told them what the politicians wanted to hear it's 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 really as if you know you were going somewhere and asking a question in a way that anything else would not be acceptable to you and you would be completely surprised if someone doesn't really like your candy and in that case the only thing you can say is yeah you know your candy is really sweet uh, uh, but at the end of the day they they didn't buy this uh, system of belief for one second they from day one, continued, followed their own nationalistic, religious ideology and followed it by step, step by step. And when they saw that Western politicians, be it Israelis, but also those from the EU, from other places, really want to believe that only if economic conditions will be better, they will be happy. They they just play the the, the, the role and, and show them what people wanted to see. Now we have only ourselves to blame. It's it's this misconception is something that I and a few other researchers are talking about for a very long time, and yet it's as if no one wants to hear it. It's, it's not nice, it's not really. Uh, It's not the the politically correct thing to say. Uh, And I can tell you a secret. It's not really nice to say even in academia. You know, when when I present my results, I have to be apologetic all the time. It's how come? How come? Maybe you have something wrong in your analysis. How come more investments, more money, more prosperity does not solve the problem, does not reduce terrorism? Does not, uh, how come? Uh, it, something must be wrong in my analysis, in our analysis, because I'm not alone there. And, and you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's very difficult to uh, cry wolf when everyone else wants to believe something else. Once in a while, unfortunately, very unfortunately, because it's only after something bad happens that people come to talk to me <laughs> but but that's the case. I mean it's every time when it comes to a catastrophe then they ask themselves whatever we've done wrong, how come our cure didn't uh, uh, heal the, the, the disease that we have here uh, uh, only for me to say that you know you don't have the the, the, the correct medication. It's uh, the, the correct medication is schooling from day one. You have to change the entire school system and you have to control that teaching and schooling from day one. Uh, not, it, it sounds really, really harsh, but not to allow them to put any contents that is not scrutinized and is not somehow mm-hmm. overviewed by uh, Western uh, uh, people. Uh, right. Th- and, and and only after a decade, you know, there will be a generation lost. But after, you know, a decade or so, then you will start to see the fruits because you will have finally enough majority or uh, at least uh, a, a balancing uh, point uh, in terms of quantity of people that would be uh, willing and interested in more peaceful solution results and those one yes, they will be they they will need the economic prosperity in order to to uh, fuel their their uh, beliefs and interests. but the ones that we have right now, they were raised on hatred from day one they don't care about money they they think about potentially dying tomorrow. it's, it's not as if being more exactly. What you're saying really
0: echoes what Golda Meir said, peace will come when the Arabs will love their children
1: more than they hate us. That's exactly so. The only difference between me and Abba Eben is that I think that we should do something so that they change their set of beliefs and and values so that they will love their children more than they hate us. Uh, Because if we wait for them to do that by their own, It doesn't seem that will happen anytime soon.
0: Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I learned a tremendous amount and very counterintuitive to our Western thoughts and processes and beliefs. So this is really a a realignment that I hope the politicians that uh, listen to headlines, I don't know if they do, but if they I hope they do. And I hope they hear your insights because this is something that they need to hear. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you very much.